international theatre debut. So tell me, is it different working here to other theatres? Is it what you expected? Um, well, it's certainly the biggest stage that I've ever worked on. Um, Fiona remembers the uh, Canterbury Tales that I directed when I was 19 uh, in a very, very uh, small theatre in Cambridge, the Student Theatre. So this stage that we're sitting on right now does seem to be um, really a quantum leap from that. Um, and even the Royal Court Theatre downstairs, where, is it, as it were, that's my day job, I'd always thought that stage was really huge. And then you arrive here and all your perceptions are changed forever. Um, so there's the, there's the scale of it, and also I suppose inevitably there's the pressure of it as well. The feeling that um, expectations are higher, uh, I suppose, than any other theatre probably in the world. And also when you're doing a new play, there's always essentially a focus on the writer as the kind of primary um, artist. And I suppose when you revive an existing play, much more questions get asked about your choices as a director, why and how uh, you've done everything. And there is that very alarming moment when Nicholas Heitner uh, says to you, how's it going uh, in your <laughs> first week of rehearsals? And you feel very much like the headmaster is, uh, and you struggle to find a buoyant reply. And then you hear the message from stage management the following week, well, Nick is just keen to set the date when he'll come and watch a run through in the rehearsal room. <laughs> oh, good, yes, great. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that too, and uh, good. Uh, and then you just try and put the date as late on as you possibly can in the rehearsals, as you desperately keep peddling. And then, uh, of course, he arrives in that last week of rehearsal and sits at the front quite quietly with his notebook, and you feel a terror in the rehearsal room, for which you as the director have to seem very uh, unaffected by. Uh, and then you do it, and... Uh, and in this case, he was very kind and very supportive. But those moments of showing the work uh, to him, and then, of course, to get to a first preview is also very daunting here, because you've got a large number of people on a big stage, and you really don't know what's going to happen. So I would say the fear factor is high. Okay, that's, well, Strange Interlude uh, was hugely successful during O'Neill's lifetime. I think he and, and his colleagues were a bit surprised about this, but it's rarely performed now. Uh, and when the National offered you this piece, did you know much about it? No, I didn't, and I didn't know very much about Eugene O'Neill either. Um, I mean, it's sort of how it works in this situation was that um, Nick had seen some plays that I directed at the Royal Court and had suggested that I do direct something here. And he had a list of plays that he was thinking about programming, and I had a list as well, and we both read each other's lists. And um, Nick then explained that he'd actually seen Strange Interlude nearly 30 years ago when Glenda Jackson was in it. Um, and in fact, the line he said to me was that that was one of the productions that really uh, made Nick want to become a director. Really? Yeah. So I think it had been his wish or dream that he should get it done here before he left. So I then read it, and well, of course, I read the five hour. <laughs> version of the play, so it took quite a long time to read it, um, and felt that it was such an audacious experiment, and it still felt audacious even after all these years on, that to do a first play here that was intrinsically an experiment felt very exciting. So it just seemed like for both of us it was the right play to do. But you, uh, perhaps we should reassure people, it's not, it's not five hours now. It it's is four and three quarters now. <laughs> so, um. Uh, um, but the original text is obviously famously daunting. Uh, did you find it easy to cut to make it into the three hours, 20 it is now? Well, what's interesting is that when I think O'Neill, as I discovered, wrote it, he, he always knew it was too long. Um, it was first done in 1928, and um, he did cut quite a, some of it, even for the first production. But what they did then was we discovered was they would have had two intervals, one of which was a dinner break, in which people would have gone home and got changed, 
had their <clears throat> came back, had dinner, and then watched the rest of it. And uh, we discovered that probably what would have happened in those days was that people would have got quite drunk um, <laughs> in those two intervals, more and more so. So there was quite, in the original, there's a lot of repetition, which I think was basically O'Neill going, we need to recap. <laughs> for people after these long gaps, exactly who's who. Kind of previously on Strange Interviews. Totally. I mean, he was the sort of, in a way, first writer of the soap opera, O'Neill, arguably, in these the storylines in this one are very sort of gripping, but he was very sensitive, I think, to those factors. So knowing we would only do it with one interval and at least hoping that people would be less drunk now than they were then, we thought, we really, we don't need so much help. So we have not cut any of the scenes. There are nine scenes in the original, and those nine scenes remain. But what we did do, Ben Power and I, was just to prune back all the underlinings, the italics, the re-remindings. Uh, but it was the first time in my life that I'd cut a play and then decided we, in fact, in rehearsals, overcut it. So we then started to put material back into it, which is really um, unusual. Um, but we felt like actually the epic sweep of the play is part of its meaning and its power. And if it became too truncated, you might actually feel a bit shortchanged somehow. So we tried to find a balance. So how much did you put back in? Well, we put some of the sort of, like, um, there were certain um, very, those of you who've seen it, those of you who will see it, will encounter or remember, there's a very vivid passage of Marsden's, the writer in the last scene, when he says a line, my life is an evening. And there's a, a, a passage around that where he speaks very vividly about flowers and the autumnal stage of life. Now, when we were religiously going through it, cutting anything that was holding up the narrative, that went. But that was exactly the kind of passage that in rehearsals we thought, ah, oh, we've actually earned this uh, at this place in the story. And actually that heightened poetry is really where the, I think the play goes to. It kind of ascends to a kind of stylization. So as I got to know the play better, those kind of passages came back in. It, it did, I was reading, it did make me laugh. Uh, I think Lynn Fontaine, one of the original actors in, in the original production, thought some of the lines were a little bit long. She decided to cut a few and decided O'Neill would just simply never notice they'd gone, and he never did, apparently. <laughs> so that shows there was a little bit of scope yeah. for cutting. Yeah. So Strange Interlude has famously been described as a novel in play form. Uh, the characters speak to each other, and then they privately reveal their inner thoughts to us, the audience, in asides. Mm. Um, was that hard to direct, and, and was it tough for the actors to almost be commenting on their own performances all the time? Yes, I mean, I suppose what's unusual about Strange Interlude is that there are these asides during it, and unlike um, Shakespeare, for example, where there is no fourth wall, you're in the same light, you're in the same theatre, the dialogue is very clear. Here you have a very naturalistic drama in which people are smashing the fourth wall all the time and telling you exactly what they're thinking about another character or about themselves or about their fears for the future or the past, etc., etc. So. We started in rehearsals by going, well, what could that possibly, how to do that? And what's going to be the way of dealing with these? So I suppose what we did at the beginning of rehearsals was to do quite a lot of improvisations where people had to improvise, for example, laying the table, uh, and then telling us in the room um, how they were feeling and what they were expecting and what was in their heart and in their mind. And we realized there were three different ways of doing this. One was to speak, as it were, to our mirror, so one speaks kind of intensely in a way that seems just in touch with a kind of reflection. The second way was to feel like you were speaking to a wall, so it was entirely private, but just sort of emanating from one. And the third way was what we call the dialogue, which was to go, right, 
I'm actually going to speak to you and to you and to you and to you about where I am now. And as we were, and the strange thing about rehearsals is you're kind of playing the part of the audience from day one and trying to imagine what they'll feel. And collectively in the room, the one that we just felt most interested by was, of course, the dialogue. Which meant that for the actors that was quite hard because they had to do an awful lot of talking to me <laughs> for seven weeks. And of course you realize that as soon as you can't hide behind a mirror or a wall and you have to contact people, it's very, very exposing because you can quickly forget who you are or what you're thinking about or what you're meant to be doing. So giving the confidence to the actors to go, we can speak to you and yet we can also stay in our private world and yet you can become included within it was um, a lot of where the work uh, was put. The actors are actually look picking individual audience members to, to talk to each night, are they, as it were? Sort of, can they see, can they see the audience? Um, well, I think what's interesting exactly is that um, this question about the many selves. So we've all been in situations, I suppose, whereby one's been lying in bed and thinking, I must get up now. I must <laughs> get up. The alarm is going. And one therefore is used to having a dialogue with yourself. And so what we came up with in the room was to go, the 900 people or 300 or 200 people who are sitting there are versions of the self which you speak to and remind and command yourself to do. So it's quite a sort of epic idea, but it seemed to be the one that was the most practically meaningful. And I think for those people who've seen it, as I have, it, as Simon said, it's a very big stage, this is a very wide stage. And I felt very involved in the action mm. because of that. And I think that's a good way of drawing people in. Mm. Um, so, Simon, as we've discussed, you're, you're used to working at the Royal Court with new writing, and therefore I presume you're used to having the playwright in the rehearsal mm. room with you. Um, would you have liked O'Neill in rehearsals with you here? And what would you have asked him? It's mm, a good question. Um, Max Stafford Clark, um, I, I think, has written, has written this book about directing the recruiting officer, um, which is an 18th century play, George Farquhar, I think, mm -hmm. and how every night he would go and write a letter um, to George, which was all the things that he wanted to ask or wanted to say or wanted to get off his chest, and then published a, a book of all of these letters. So I think you do inevitably go home every night and talk to Eugene. Uh, and in fact, um, we had a poster uh, of his face in the rehearsal room which I bought at uh, O'Neill's Birthplace Museum in America, and it simply says, the face of genius, uh, and then it's his photograph. So we occasionally had to remind ourselves about, well, he's here, what would he think? Would he approve or disapprove? Um, but there was one quote, actually, that, I, that I, um, I read on the first day of rehearsals, which is from him, and um, I thought I might share it, because in a way, it really um, grounded us a lot. It's certainly interesting to remember that O'Neill's father was a very successful actor, uh, although he ended up playing the Count of Monte Cristo for sort of like 27 years and felt like he sold out and played his melodramatic parts. So O'Neill's project, even from a child, was an interest in the theatre, but a wish to correct it or to bring realism and intensity and, if you like, a new sense of truth into the American theatre. So there's just the three sentences that he, he wrote this letter in uh, 1927, just when he'd almost finished the play. And he said, um, The real truth is I was practically born in the theatre. And I couldn't do anything that wasn't practical in a theatre if I tried. I'm too wrapped up in the theatre as a medium. I've simply made it a bit broader, higher, and deeper than the usual show stop. But what I write can always be done. And that was sort of an interesting mantra to go, we've got to trust that he knows what he's doing.
that can be done, and if you believe in it enough, it will work. So there was never any dart throwing at the face of genius? Well, maybe moments. a little bit. Oh, okay. The play, uh, many things interest me about it, but one of the things is it's startly, startlingly frank, both for its own time and I think even now, about the character's emotional and sexual needs and fears, isn't mm. it? Is that something that you and the cast sort of dwelt upon a lot? Yeah, I mean, without wanting to reveal the plot, of course, part of it is um, Nina, the protagonist, is, is lost her fiancé in the First World War and early on in the play becomes a kind of nymphomaniac. Um, although you never see those scenes, um, she goes to this military hospital and starts to have sex with these wounded soldiers as a way of trying to deal with the trauma of this man whom she never slept with and, and, and losing him at that key moment. So uh, immediately you do have a very shocking context which at the time was shocking, but still today, this question of a woman trying to uh, feel herself sexually as a way of both releasing herself of guilt, but also to kind of resensitize herself is a very complicated idea. So it felt like for us to really do that justice, we did, led by Anne-Marie very bravely, go, well, let's improvise the military hospital in terms of recreating that hospital. And although we didn't recreate the absolute detail of everything she did with those soldiers, we did try and go imaginatively into the world and try and understand what she, what this character was doing and why she was doing it as a way of kind of channeling um, that energy. And that was, quite, that was quite scary for all of us because also O'Neill is interested in tidal waves of feeling and suffering and emotion. And partly they are the great dynamics that fuel the drama. So we knew we had to either contact those or we would be cowardly in a way. So it does, quite, it does take courage, the play. And do you think O'Neill, is he judging Nina? Is he, people often say he's a misogynist. Do you think he's looking kindly on Nina? I, it's interesting, Queen, isn't it? Because people sometimes say this character is sympathetic or this character is unsympathetic or they're being judged. And I suppose our job has been always to go, why do they do what they do? And this thing we found in rehearsals that basically, often actors say to me, why do I say this? Why do I do this? Why do I make this decision? And I often feel like we do things in order to bring ourselves closer to happiness and further away from pain. And in this play, like all others, everyone's trying to do their best to be happy, to do the right thing, however strange and barbaric in a way it seems externally. So to understand why rather than to judge. And I think actually O'Neill too was trying to give them material to live by. And he was probably as confused and startled and provoked and ambivalent about the characters as, as we are. Because another, another inflection is the play, in the play is the influence of, the at the time, the fairly new and, and fashionable discipline of psychoanalysis, isn't it? And that sort of feeds into the asides and the frankness and so on. Again, was that something that, that influenced your rehearsal, something you all kind of discussed, or was that just...? I mean, he was quite sort of flippant about it and said, oh, well, um, I'm not really interested in psychoanalysis and all these things are not, you know, I, I, I'm not writing a play about psychoanalysis. But of course, you can see the influence of Freud. And I mean, there was a particularly, you know, we had a question mark at the beginning about Marsden, who is the kind of writer, narrator figure. And he's a very interesting character because he's sexually rather, he's in love with Nina, but he's also rather reticent about ever expressing that. Um, and he has a sort of 
a very, uh, if you like, strong relationship with his mother. <laughs> and um, on one level, one could feel that was, um, you know, um, a little kind of, um, if you like, cod psychology. But in a way, in the rehearsal room, you just don't have any space for that other than to go, well, he's close to his mother. So let's go. Uh, and just treat that as a real, as anyone having a penchant for ice cream or anything. It's just another little factor from them which we have to accept. Well, perhaps we might turn to the casting now. And anyone who has seen Anne-Marie Duff's wonderful performance will, I'm sure, find it hard to imagine anyone else playing the immensely challenging role of Nina. So was Anne-Marie the first actor you cast, or how did the casting process work? Yes, I mean, there are not many actresses. This whole question of um, playing at ages that, that, that... So Anne-Marie, for example, plays Nina, I think, at 19, at the 1920, at the beginning of the play, and by the uh, end of the play, she's in her 50s. Uh, so, late 40s, 50s. So, it's pretty challenging to find an actress that could span those ages believably. But a lesson I learned from the Royal Court when Dominic Cook, my boss there, directed a production of Chicken Soup with Barley, was that he, and also Love, Love, Love as well, the Mike Bartlett play that was also done there, is that there was a really clear decision to go, we need to cast actors who are closer to where the characters end than where they begin. And I found that really useful. Because somebody in their 20s playing somebody of 50 um, is much more difficult than the other way around. But Anne-Marie sat very nimbly between those brackets and has the flexibility to be able, I think, to carry those bodies and those ages really well. And she's also brave and heroic and unvain enough to be able to be a really great interpreter of O'Neill. So from the beginning, really, we knew we would love her to do the part. The characters, yes, as Simon just mentioned, the characters age more than 25 years over the nine acts. So obviously, apart from the, the purely cosmetic, what other challenges does this present for them and for you? Does it require a special way into the play to think we've got such a span of years to go through? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit like, isn't it, that if someone said to all of us in the audience, what are the nine moments in your life that have most defined who you are? And O'Neill's done a similar thing to these guys. He said, particularly for Nina, but the other characters as well, these are the nine defining moments. And I suppose for all of us, if we got to the end of our lives and look back at those nine moments, we'd be deeply surprised that probably we had very little idea, at least some of them, that they would become the moments that we would look back on and go, ah, my life and who I am was defined then and then and then. So first of all, you have to understand what they are in themselves but also, I suppose, a knowledge that a moment can only ever be understood by the moment that precedes it and the moments that sort of led to it. So the gaps between the scenes became as important for us to think about as just the scenes themselves. So again, we had a long rehearsal period, partly so that we could delve into the gaps between and go, yes, but what have you been doing for the last seven years? Where are you living now? Where are you working? What's changed for you? Why is your hair gray? When did it go gray? How do you feel about that? Et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, there was quite a lot of investigation to all of those things. Because sure. there are, so between some scenes, I think there's one, the action is 11 years further on. You think, goodness, yeah. that's, we've, yes, time has passed. Um, I don't think I'm giving anything away if I say that there are a feast of sets and scene changes uh, on offer in this production. Um, how did you and the designer, Sutra Gilmore, approach the need for such a vast variety of locations? Well, I suppose it was twofold, really. One was that um, having come from this very useful, I found, tradition at the Royal Court, which is to go, whenever you, wherever you set a play at the Royal Court, there's a tradition that you always go there. That you 
that you basically, sort of supernaturalist tradition, go to the world, deliver the world accurately on stage. So when we decided to do it, I said to, to, to the National Theatre, well, I'm used to going to Epping or uh, Hertfordshire or, or, or well, Scotland, whatever, I, and so that might mean that I would really like to go to America, um, somewhat conveniently, you could argue, um, to try and look at all the locations that this play is set. So they kind of went, um, right, okay. So I wrote a kind of document sort of showing that I was serious in my intention. And then very generously, they allowed Sutra, the designer, and I, in fact, to go to those places. And it is just a very different thing when you're imagining a place and you stand in front of it. You know, you go to a suburb uh, between New York, uh, you know, the, on the um, north of New York, or you go to a homestead, uh, the place where he specifies, because you bring back, inevitably, a much greater sense of the realism of it. And the second thing was that I think internally here there was a very strong wish, is that the stage directions for each act are unbelievably precise, really meticulous. And as far as we can tell, no one has ever done the play trying to realize the stage directions as carefully as we've done. And I suppose that's because no other theaters have really ever had the resource to be able to do that. So they've gone, well, let's set it in a sort of more abstract space, or only originally it was done on a very big stage with some furniture, and that was it. So it felt like a real once-in-a-lifetime chance to say, okay, if he's going to be in this apartment block in, America, in New York, Let's just try and really bring that to life. And, and I won't reveal any more locations because they're part of the fun of it. But yeah, that was, so that was a kind of conscious choice from us. So uh, you actually, you preempted my next question. I was fascinated when I read, read the script. I was fascinated by the stage directions because they're, they're a novel in themselves. Mm. For instance, the, the first scene here in the study, which is the first scene you'll see, um, it's Professor Leeds' study, Nina's father's study. And then just the book, he says, the books are by all the English authors who wrote while S was still like an F and a few since then. And it goes on like this for paragraph upon paragraph. Did you ever get to a point and think, oh, for goodness sake, I'm just going to do this. I can't read any more of this stuff. I don't care about the books if they've got an S or an F. Have well, we I'm, I'm now looking worriedly around to see whether we have actually, after claiming to respond so well to stage directions, were there any, are there any such books with those in? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we sort of, um, it's fact, when you say about, do, do you wish the playwright was in the room with you? And stage directions are the nearest you're ever going to come to knowing what a playwright thought and wanted and felt. So it's always really helpful to go back to that, even if in the end you decide we don't quite need to put every single book in the place that he thought of. But by and large, it interests me more to try and realize a writer's vision than if you like to replace it with my own vision. Is it a different challenge approaching a classic text as opposed to new writing? I mean, do you deliberately make yourself aware of the, the weight of the performance history down the years of, of a play or do you just disregard that and you're approaching it fresh? I think Anne-Marie said to me once, oh, I keep bumping into people who've said, oh, I remember Glenda Jackson doing that, and she was so amazing, and feeling like every time someone said that, her heart kind of... Um, so I think as much as possible, you're trying, you are trying to create a sense of the play has never been done before, and that no one's living in the shadow of anybody else, and you're just making it up, as it were, as you go along, without any anxiety about the past. And what's quite nice about this play is, apart from people remembering Glenda, on the whole, people haven't seen the play yeah. before. They don't know how it's going to end, and they can't really compare it to the one they saw last year. Yeah. And that's sort of really nice. One thing I've realized doing the play is that when you speak aloud your thoughts in life, they are intrinsically quite funny. 
partly because they exist in a kind of tension between what you're doing and what you're thinking. So whether that's um, sitting in a play, but actually I could give you many examples. But so the thought and the life are in a kind of asymmetrical relationship. So I suppose most famously, the guy doing dressed in a bowler hat in a smart suit doing a series of funny walks a la Monty Python is that disconnect between what we, one thing and another simultaneously at odds with each other. So that the speaking out of the thought is intrinsically funny, especially when someone on stage doesn't know that I am telling you something about them that they don't think I know. So we have a kind of dramatic irony, I suppose, that's created. And a sense also of being in collaboration between the character and the audience member, which the audience member will, if you like, squeal with pleasure at, because we seem to really like being in collaboration or in the know. I think O'Neill has a really barbed sense of humor, which is black and tough. So I think the combination of him saying, let's get these complicated, dark characters to speak aloud their thoughts and his own barbed wit sort of come together to make a kind of comic alchemy, if you like. But what it is fair to say is that I don't think it was his wish to write a comic play. I think what we see O'Neill now as being is a largely naturalistic writer because of Long Day's Journey Into Night and The Iceman Coming. But in the 1920s, he was writing a whole series of really amazing experiments. You know, plays set on boats in the Harry Ape, uh, plays with very thick um, dialogue, uh, um, accents in um, Desire Under the Elms. Lazarus laughed, was this extraordinary kind of biblical drama. So much more like Carol Churchill or someone today who's very interested in formal experiment, his search was to go, right, how do I energize theatre by this idea of people speaking out their thoughts? Even in the original production, lots of people laughed. And he was surprised by that, but I don't think he was horrified by it. I think he was probably rather intrigued by the laughter because he'd unlocked something about this asymmetrical relationship between life and inner and outer world. And finally, I suppose, again, a, a line that I remember from Dominic Cook, who who's always says when you're directing a new plays, Simon, you, you always end up directing the plays the playwright doesn't know they've written. <laughs> and I suspect when he first saw this in front of an audience, he was probably uh, delighted and horrified and surprised and rather thrilled in a way. So our wish to label, to categorize a play, or our, our anxiety about that is somehow to miss the point that this is by its very aim a genre-busting play. He wanted everyone to go, what is this? Comedy, tragedy, drama, soap opera? Because of course he was searching for what ultimately he wished he would write, which he'd come all the way back to one of his last plays with Long Day's Journey and Tonight and make this really perfect fourth wall drama. But I don't think he could have done that had he not gone all around the houses um, through his many experiments to come back um, to the world that he did. Simon, it's been fascinating talking to you about Strange Interlude, but perhaps could you just give us a brief sh snapshot of the play of the work you're going to be doing next after? Just to. Well, yes, definitely I can. I, um, so right now I'm doing a Bernard Shaw play called Candida, and it's interesting because I think O'Neill was quite influenced by Bernard Shaw or, or interested in this kind of intense. Of course, Bernard Shaw is very uh, language based, so I'm doing that at the Theatre Royal Bath. Uh, and then I'm going to go back to the Royal Court and do a play for them in the autumn, which we're just deciding which one it is. And then I'm doing The Little Mermaid um, for a Christmas show at the Bristol Old Vic, where I used to work. And I'm going to go back 
to that. So it's a big variety of things. There's, there's so much here we could, we could talk about, but I'm sure many of you are keen to see the actual play now. So I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap things up. So all that remains for me to do is to thank you all very much for coming. And of course, to thank our guest, Simon Godwin.